Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I'm your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. Today, we are going to be continuing our conversation with a very inspiring individual who is helping increase awareness among the legal profession and in our communities about the very real struggles of addiction and eating disorders. It is my honor to be welcoming Brian Cuban back to the show. Brian is a Dallas-based attorney, author, and addiction recovery advocate. He is also the younger brother of Dallas Mavericks owner and entrepreneur, Mark Cuban. He is a graduate of Penn State University and the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. He has been in long-term recovery from alcohol, cocaine, eating disorders, and depression since April of 2007. His first book, Shattered Image, My Triumph Over Body Dysmorphic Disorder, chronicles his firsthand experiences living with and recovering from 27 years of eating disorders and body dysmorphic disorder. Brian's most recent best-selling book, The Addicted Lawyer, Tales of the Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption is an unflinching look back at how addiction and other mental issues destroyed his career as a once successful lawyer and how he and others in the profession redefined their lives in recovery and found redemption. It's my pleasure to welcome Brian Cuban back to the show. Hey, Christina. So, Brian, in the first part of our interview, we discussed your incredibly compelling personal journey with alcoholism, drug addiction, and eating disorders, as well as depression. We also talked about your defining moments as you began your road to recovery in 2007. What made you decide that speaking openly about these issues, as you have so generously done with us, starting with the first segment, What made you decide that speaking this way about these issues and being an addiction recovery addict is your life's work? And as part of that, we'd love to hear about your books as well. Well, it all started in terms of the speaking. It it started long before I began speaking about uh, the legal profession. It really started with speaking about out about uh, eating disorders. Even in my 40s, I was very ashamed and I knew I had an eating order by that time. And it was the last thing I admitted to my psychiatrist. I was lying to him, lying to him, lying to him about so many things. Well, why would you lie to your psychiatrist? Well, shame knows no hourly rate, right, Christina? Right. I was ashamed. I was ashamed. And so I was researching eating disorders, trying to get some context for myself about what I was going through. And I came across an article, not about a guy. It was about model Carolyn Reston who died many years ago from complications relating to, uh, I believe it was anorexia. And I looked at the comments section and there were comments from guys. And I thought to myself, wow, I'm not alone. And I literally thought I was the only guy in the world who had an eating disorder. And this was in the era of search engines and the internet, but I was too afraid to go look because it would validate that I was the only guy out there. And I should be ashamed. That's how it messes with you. I'm a lawyer. Lawyer, We're supposed to have fairly logical minds. I wouldn't even search because in my mind, to search would just validate what I already felt about felt. And so I saw these comments and I realized that I wasn't alone. 
And I decided that for me, not for anyone else, this was selfish. I admit it. For me, as part of my recovery, I was going to write a blog, and it's still there. If you go on my blogs back to 2008, it's still there about being bulimic. And the journey began as an advocate. I got email. I received emails. I received from guys, from women, thanking me for helping to break the stigma. And this was at a time, Christina, when I was really lost. Even though I was beginning recovery, I never wanted to be a lawyer. I really didn't know what my future held. I didn't know what my passion was. I didn't know what made me feel good in terms of helping others. It wasn't the law, although the law is an admirable, wonderful way to feel good about helping others. It just wasn't me. And so I felt so good and realized that I had affected lives. I had affected a life, these people who didn't feel alone because of what I said. And that began the journey into advocacy. And so I wrote my first book, which was called Shattered Image, that didn't focus as much on addiction. It focused on my struggle with body image and eating disorders and body dysmorphic disorder. And what body dysmorphic disorder is, is when someone takes a perceived a, or even non-existent perceived defect in their body and their reflection and exaggerates it to the point where it affects their ability to function, quote unquote, normally in life. For me, I saw this huge stomach, but it affects about two to 3% of the population and has a very high correlation with eating disorders and different mental health issues, suicide. And so the book revolved around those issues, not so much about the legal profession and addiction. And all of a sudden, I was somebody people wanted to talk to about eating disorders. And my last name had a lot to do with it. My last name had a lot to do with that. And that's fine. Whatever gets the message out there, oh, Mark Cuban's brother had an eating disorder. No problem there at all. Whatever gets the message out. And so I began speaking about eating disorder recovery and body image. But it it always was in the back of my mind of what I saw in the legal profession, of the people I saw struggling, the people I lost. One of the last guys I practiced law with uh, lost his life to the battle of alcohol. His name was Gary, and I've written about him too. And I know others, people who have OD'd, people who have gone to prison. I'm very lucky I didn't go to prison. And I really wanted to write that book as well. And I finally did. And I finally was able to mesh in my mind how I wanted to say it and what I wanted wanted it to achieve if I wrote that book. And I didn't want it to be just a memoir about my story. I wanted it to be something that law students and lawyers and anyone in the legal profession can look at and come away with things they could use. Not a textbook, but a book of stories that offer things they could take from every story. So I went out and I found other law students who were struggling, who had struggled and were in recovery. I went out and found other law students, other lawyers who had struggled and were in recovery. I think one had lost her license, people who had to redefine their lives and people who continued to practice law. And so I did that. And then I went out and got people who offered just nuts and bolts advice of what happens when you're before the disciplinary board? How does that come into play? What about character and fitness? So I wanted to bring it all together and make it kind of a hybrid. And the addicted lawyer was born. So in that vein of your books and the advocacy you've been doing, 
I'm sure you talk about this a lot. What are the signs of addiction that we should be looking for while with others and and within ourselves, whether it's the legal profession or beyond, just signs of addiction? And how do we know and when do we know that we need to get help and, and be of help either for ourselves or people we know? Well, let's first define addiction. Obsessive, uh, compulsive, drug-seeking in the face of known consequences. If I'm doing cocaine, I know that's wrong, right? Right. But I can't stop. So I don't want to put out the idea that I'm doing cocaine and I don't know I'm doing cocaine, right? And that's a problem. That's not how addiction works. Take a look at your life. What does your life look like? What are your personal relationships look like? What are your work relationships look like? What are you versus what you're telling yourself? And that's a difficult conversation to have with yourself because you have to force a moment of self-awareness. If you journal out your relationships, journal out what's going on at work, are you missing appointments at work? Are you not answering your phone call? Are you not returning your mail? I know lawyers who all of a sudden, while they're struggling, it went from returning mail to if I don't open it, it didn't come. Those kind of things. And then it just snowballs into, well, now I can't open it because I'm already in trouble. And we just keep letting it snowball and snowball until it's malpractice or it's something worse. When we're looking at ourselves and when we're looking within, take out true stock of what your day-to-day life looks like. Do you consider that what you want it to look like? Do you consider that normal? Is it what your colleagues looks like? I think that's one way we can do it. When we look at someone else who you think is struggling, are they coming to work? Are they missing hearings? Are they returning their calls? Are they returning their mail? Are there client complaints to the firm? There are all kinds of signs. The issue isn't the sign, okay? The issue is, what do you want to do about the signs? How do you confront somebody that you suspect is having problems? That's a wonderful question. Let's divvy out conduct from just, you think something's wrong, okay? Because if you see something that's governed by the rules of disciplinary procedure, then you know what you have to do. We have a duty to do certain things when we see certain things, right? Right. Ethical obligations. We have ethical obligations. So let's talk about when that hasn't been triggered. We all have the ability to utilize the one gift, the one thing that every human being on this earth has. Some use it better than others. Some don't always use it. We have the ability to empathize. We have the ability of voice to open our mouths. And I say this in a generalized fashion because people will say, well, some people you know, talk about disabilities. I understand. We all have, whether, however we express that voice, we all have a voice in the ability to say, are you doing okay? How are you doing? Can I help with anything? You don't have to say, you smell. You don't have to say, you're drunk. You don't have to be accusatory or judgmental. That is the worst thing we can do. But we can say, how are you doing? You do that anyways to people, right? You walk up on the street, how are you doing? We use it as a throwaway. How are you doing? To move on to the next conversation. It is one sentence that takes, let's do it. How are you doing? How long did that take? Less than two seconds? Yeah. In less than two seconds, you can change the course of someone's life. 
I call it the two ask rule, Christina. Ask someone how they're doing. Wait a few seconds. Wait for the answer. I'm doing great. Thanks. Uh, whatever. It's okay. And then ask again. Maybe you'll get something you can respond to. Maybe you'll get, I'm fine. And in those few seconds, maybe they'll tell you something. But even if they don't, it's a touch point. It is a cumulative touch point on a road to self-awareness. Someone else may ask them the same thing. And you've just planted a thought that someone cares. And that notion that people care can be the one thing that propels someone to take that first step towards recovery. That isn't scientific. That isn't something out of a psychiatrist's handbook. It is an anecdotal tool that I use and that has worked. How you doing? I know that you seem to be having a tough day. Can I help? And to do that, we have to step outside of our comfort zone. You step outside of your comfort zone all the time in a courtroom, don't you? Or to do this or to do that? Absolutely. Step outside of your comfort zone in the hallway. So what if that doesn't work? If it doesn't work, then, and you think there is really an issue that rises to the level of something, okay, we need more than how you're doing, you call your lawyer's assistance program. It's, they're not going to rat you out. It's anonymous. You can be anonymous or not anonymous. They're going to take it from there. You can call your lawyer's assistance program. They will coach you on how to approach a colleague. They'll coach you on how to approach your spouse or a family member. Take advantage of your lawyer's assistance program if you believe there is a true issue. If you're not sure, start with how you're doing. If you think it it needs more than that, call the lawyer's assistance program. They'll take it from there. I know there's a distrust of lawyer's assistance programs. I know that. They are confidential by, I think everyone, by statute. They're not going to rat you out. It's not going to get back that you said anything. I'm going to ruin a life. I'm going to ruin his life. You're not going to ruin his life. These people know what they're doing or her life. You know what's a ruined life is when addiction just continues to take its snowball course to consequences catching up to a problem. That's when lives get ruined. Hopefully not ruined enough to tragedy where there is no opportunity to step up because the person's below ground. What would you say are the most common misconceptions about addiction and eating disorders? And I'm going to back up one more to add one more thing. If you're in a mid-sized large firm, you probably have an employee's assistance program. Yes. A lot of organizations, law firms, companies, you're absolutely right. Call them and ask for advice. Call the employee's assistance program, the EAP. Call your EAP. Utilize it. One of the most controversial issues around eating disorders and addiction, one of the things that I get into it now and then with people is people think that addiction is a choice. It's a moral failing. We deserve what we get. Just stop. Just say no, right? Just Nancy Reagan, just say no. It's not. It's an illness. It is a brain-based illness. Was the first time I snorted that line of cocaine in that bathroom in Dallas, Texas, illegally, a choice? Of course. Of course that was a choice. It was a choice influenced by a lot of underlying mental health issues to feel good about myself and to look for an artificial way if I couldn't do it myself because I was told it would make me feel good about myself by the person who gave it to me. And I was very susceptible at that time to that suggestion. But what happened in those seconds after I did that, that feeling that compulsion in my brain that I had to do it again 
and again and again. I did not choose that. I did not stand in that bathroom in Dallas, Texas and say, I'm going to do this line of cocaine and I'm going to lose my legal career. I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to fail the bar twice. I'm going to get married three times. I'm going to have three failed marriages and that's going to be great. I choose that. No one in the right mind chooses that. It wasn't a choice. Addiction's not a choice. Eating disorders aren't a choice. People can't just eat more. That's not how eating disorders work. Eat a hamburger. No, that's not how they work. They are in the brain. And the brain does funny things with the right stimuli and the wrong stimuli. With all the work you're doing, which, as we've discussed, is just tremendous to increase the awareness of the issues regarding addiction and eating disorders, what are you learning about these issues that you didn't know before? That's a really general question. I can tell you one of the first things with eating disorders that I really had to come to understand was the difference between cause and correlation, okay? There was a many years when I blamed my mother for everything I went through growing up because it was easier to blame her than and make everything about her than face what I felt about myself and face how to figure out recovery. And so I have found that blaming blame is not going to cure an eating disorder and it's not going to cure addiction. I have learned about how destructive blame is. That is one thing. And as far as, I mean, as I said earlier, parents do not cause eating disorders. That is, we know that. Are family genetics part of eating disorders? Absolutely, up to 50%. Although I had no eating disorder genetics in my family, although my mom had a dysfunctional relationship with food, very dysfunctional. And so I learned about that. In terms of addiction, uh, I mean, addiction is not a choice. That is the one thing. I've learned in terms of addiction that the primary gatekeepers to recovery from addiction, from what I've seen, outside medical treatment, when we have underlying issues, because we have to remember that, uh, you know, things like opioid use disorder and stuff, we have to be, we have to focus on treatment, things that are actually evidence-based treatment. But in so many of these things that are underlying trauma, and I have learned that with regards to those things, shame is one of the gatekeepers to recovery, shame and vulnerability, not facing the things we're ashamed of and dealing with those and exploring that and not allowing ourselves to be vulnerable to that shame. That is one of the constants I see in the legal profession. We are trained to take advantage of vulnerability. I'll say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it's true. It's an, adver- it's an adversarial system. Absolutely. We're trained in the adversarial system. We are also trained that to show our own vulnerability is weakness. And that becomes an all-encompassing training that can apply to everything about who we are, our upbringing our trauma. We just compartmentalize it, put it in a suitcase, pack that suitcase away, and never open it up, even though it's always there. We've talked a lot over our time together about lessons learned, and you just shared a number of them. Is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners, given that hindsight is always twenty twenty? Is there anything else you would like to share in terms of what you know now that you wish you knew back when you were a child? Yes. I'll fast forward it to what I wish I knew when I first started going through this as a lawyer, that there is no such thing as high functioning. 
this is one of the hardest things for lawyers who are struggling to get their heads around. There is no such thing as high functioning if you are not in recovery and you are struggling with substance use or you are struggling with alcohol or something else. What there are is only decreases in level of functioning. And what we do, what is instinctive often, is to keep redefining our level of high functioning and keep ducking under that line, keep ducking under that line, so we can tell ourselves we're high functioning, right? Right. I call it the Peter principle of recovery, working your way up to your level of incompetence. That level of incompetence keeps dropping and dropping and dropping. We keep ducking and ducking and ducking until finally your knees give out and you can't duck any further. And everyone else in your law firm or your family recognized it 12 ducks ago. And instead of trying to figure it out at the highest possible level, do not no matter how many times I say this, lawyers will do it. Do not wait for consequences to catch up to the problem. If you think you have a problem, if it ever crosses your mind, even fleetingly, it's 99.9% sure that you do have a problem. So Brian, as we wind our time down together, why don't you share with, with our listeners what's next for you and what you would like your legacy to be? My legacy is what it is every day. Uh, one person has found recovery because of something I said or some encouragement I gave. I help one person find recovery. One, or they help one person find recovery. My legacy will be, I, I want it to be one person at a time. One person who is now happy at a time. One person in recovery at a time. Just day by day. There's a, uh, I'm Jewish and there's a, there, there's a Jewish saying called tikkun uh, olam. It's called repairing the world. And uh, every day I just try, I repair myself to keep trying to repair my little corner of the world in hopes that that person will repair their little corner of the world and on and on and on ad infinitum. That's what I want my legacy to be. What I'm doing now is I'm, uh, I continue to speak. I continue to sponsor people, to mentor people who are struggling eating disorders, alcohol, whoever asks me for help, I help. That's, that's what it's about. They email me, they call me, I'm happy to do that. Or I'm happy to refer them to the people I know who are professionals. I'm not a professional, I'm just a guy with a story. And uh, I ve I'm veering away from books about getting help to, I'm writing to my first novel. I've decided to write my first novel. It's called The Ambulance Chaser. Oh, I know. And what's it about? about Let me it. guess, an ambulance chaser? <laughs> well, it, the ambulance chaser is more metaphorical, but it, it's about a successful Philadelphia lawyer, and it's dark, who's accused of the rape and murder of his high school crush 30 years prior, and he has to risk his career, his only son, and his life to bring the true killer to justice. That's so cool. So when do you think you're going to uh, publish it? It's well into the writing process, sometime next year. I can't wait to read it. Thank you. So Brian, do you have any closing thoughts and where can our listeners find you? Yes, you can uh, email me at Brian with an I at BrianCuban.com. You can email me through my website at BrianCuban.com. You can find me on Twitter at BCuban. If you have questions, reach out. I am as accessible as I can be. If you have questions, if you're struggling, I may not know the answer, but odds are I know someone who can help you find it or who can steer you in the right direction if you're looking for a path to recovery. Brian, thank you so much for sharing your story and for being who you are and doing what you are doing for our community. I, you know, on behalf of 
our listeners and others whom you've touched and who you will touch. Thank you so very much for being who you are. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate the kind words. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Paradigm Shift. We hope that you've enjoyed our conversation with Brian Cuban and that you will join us next week. I'm your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.